everyone and welcome to the History Hotline, the hottest line for all things black history and beyond. Violence is and will always be necessary to tear away the shreds of myth and absurdity that we've been encased in since we were born. What are you doing? You haven't done a goddamn thing to stop white violence, have you? Have you? Have you? Don't escalate the hostility. Don't escalate the uh, uh, anger. Control your mind. Uh, watch what you're doing. Be aware, totally. It was a two-week Congress of Intellectuals in London. Black power people headed by Stokely Carmichael. The flower people represented by Allen Ginsberg political scientists, and a host of sociologists and social psychologists from the U.S. and Britain. The common theme of the meeting was violence and revolution. How to explain them, how to manipulate them, how to avoid them. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 66 of the History Hotline. My name is Deanna Lincook and as always I'll be your host today. Today's episode will be thinking about Stokely Carmichael's visit to Britain, where he spoke at the Dialectics of Liberation Congress in 1967. He was the leader of SNCC, one of the prominent leaders in American black power movements across the board, for example, the Black Panthers as well. And he arrived in London July 1967 as part of an international tour. He made this speech... Um, which the excerpt was taken from, and is widely regarded as a pivotal moment in the turning point of black power in Britain. The aim of the Congress was to create a dialogue, a genuine dialogue, about revolutionary consciousness regarding violence, fusing ideology and action, thinking about individual and mass society. Carmichael advocated for black power and called for a new way of fighting institutional and individual racism, not only in Britain, but on a global scale. Today's episode will be in around five parts. We're going to think about who Stokely Carmichael was, also known as Kwame Ture, and we will get into that as well. Um, The race relations in Britain prior to the Congress, which we have thought about on this podcast before, in the 50s and 60s. Our third section will be on the Dialectics of Liberation Congress itself. The fourth will be the impact of uh, Carmichael's speech and the fifth will be the end. Um, The endings of Stokely Carmichael, what happened after the speech um, and the things he went on to do. This episode follows on and kind of finalises, I guess, our series on um, people with Caribbean backgrounds and the kind of Caribbean influences of black power movements and how they impacted um, the US in terms of immigration and community building there and also now how that in turn went on to impact Britain in its movements for black liberation as Stokely Carmichael, um, who was born in Trinidad and Tobago in Port of Spain, moved to Harlem and then ended up in Britain in 1967 for this Dialects of Liberation So Stokely Carmichael was a key leader, as mentioned, um, in black power movements. He was leading at first the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, also known as SNCC, then was Honorary Prime Minister of the Black Panther Party, 
Um, and kind of last of all was leader of the All African People's Revolutionary Party. Um, all of those were American based, although he did end his kind of life and political activism career in Africa, in um, different parts of Africa. So he was born, as mentioned, in Trinidad and Tobago. He moved to Harlem, um, which is in New York, in 1952 at the age of 11 to rejoin his parents who had already migrated um, when he was two years old. He was then raised by his grandmother and two aunts in Trinidad um, and he had three sisters um, and they all migrated to New York. Um, long afterwards, actually, um, in kind of retrospect, he talked a lot about the British education he received um, in, obviously, one of the Queen's colonies. Um, actually, it would have been the King's colonies at that point um, in 52. Um, and he noted that we were made to memorise Kipling's White Man's Burden and we were told we didn't exist till a white man called Sir Walter Raleigh discovered us. These are quotes, by the way. Um, and he said all this in 1967. He said, we went to the movies and yelled for Tarzan to beat the hell out of Africa. Um, and it's an interesting point, I think, to make. But this idea of the colonial education system having such an impact on Stokely Carmichael's upbringing. Um, and so, you know, the kind of political seeds already sown prior to his move to the US where then he goes on to obviously see the racism faced by black people there um, and he kind of ties all the threads together and looks at black liberation on a more global scale um, and I find that quite interesting about the fact that he had roots in the Caribbean and had these kind of migrations and experiences elsewhere. So after graduating high school he enrolled at Howard University which is a HBCU, historically black college and university in Washington DC. He actually um, was offered scholarships to a number of white, white universities, if you can call them that, including Harvard, um, but turned them down to go to Howard. He left high school as somewhat of a left-wing radical, um, a student of Marx and Darwin, appalled at the brutal treatment that black people faced in the South, especially due to segregation, um, and he would join picket lines and Unfortunately, found himself, and we quote, on the wrong end of truncheons, and they are police truncheons. He said after a few beatings, he realised it was either them or me, and he said, I preferred me. Um, and the kind of militant that he would become was born out of this struggle, out of the arrests, out of the beatings, um, and out of the things he'd seen. His place, his home, um, whilst being a student, was kind of a gathering place, um, his apartment. He graduated in 64 with a degree in philosophy um, and it was there, sorry, that he was um, offered a scholarship to Harvard, um, a graduate scholarship, turned it down. Um, however, whilst at Howard, he joined um, the Nonviolent Action Group, NAG, um, which was a kind of Howard campus affiliate with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC. Um, and whilst he was in SNCC, he worked with people like uh, Bayard Rustin um, and that kind of inspired the sit-in movement in the southern United States um, and Carmichael at this point becomes more active in civil rights movements, taking part in sit-ins and re um, freedom rides um, that the Congress of Racial Equality Corps would organise um, in order to desegregate the buses 
um, and bus station restaurants along the US Route 40 between Baltimore and Washington, D.C. Um, he said that kind of during this period of activism, um, he was arrested so many times that he lost count, something between 28, 29 to 32. But he said that he can't really, he couldn't really know. Um, but it was probably under 36, so anywhere in the, the high 20s and low 30s. And to be arrested that much and to be, as he said, on the wrong end of the trench and that many times has really got to do something to your psyche um, and your, your beliefs and what you're kind of fighting for. We won't go through his whole political career, we'll be here all day. Um, but I will say that, just doing a little fast forward to 1969, this is after he's done that speech in Britain and also been banned from Britain, which we'll get into. Um, he was accompanied by his first wife, uh, Miriam Makiba, who was a South African singer, um, and left the US for Africa. And he urged all American black people to do the same. He set up home in Guinea and changed his name there to Kwame Ture, um, which is why I kind of, I struggled to know what to call him. I feel like I should call him Kwame Ture, but the time I'm speaking about, he was known as Stokely Carmichael. So historical sources that would refer to him or posters of his billing for speeches, you know, his book titles, they would all be under Stokely Carmichael because he didn't change his name till 69. Unlike Malcolm X, who kind of changed his name earlier. And so we don't really ever think of him as Malcolm Little. Um, same with um, Muhammad Ali as well, um, being Cassius Clay before that. We don't, with Stokely Carmichael, because the name change comes later on in his political career, and he's already established a name for himself as Stokely. Um, I I find it hard to jump between, but I think for this episode I'll probably go between. So just to let you know that it's the same person I'm referring to, um, I think it's, I err on the side of it being more respectful to refer to him as Kwame Ture, as that was his chosen name for important reasons and they were the fact that um I think obviously like you know removing these colonial roots um to Trinidad and, and being Stokely Carmichael which is obviously quite an anglicized name um he named himself Kwame after Kwame Nkrumah who was the first leader of an independent Ghana um and the surname Toure comes from Sekou Toure who was president of Guinea um and the sole leader in the former French um Africa that won independence um, from the French. And he also took up the case of like Pan-Africanism um, and kind of worked under that political ideology. And so that is kind of the, the main reasons that he changed his name um, at that point and kind of built a life up for himself in Africa in his latter years. As we know from past episodes um, and the kind of majority of the episodes on this podcast focus on the post-war migrations from the Caribbean to Britain, um, and we know that there was a growing presence of black people in Britain in the post-war era. It is estimated between 1961 and 1964, black, um, the black population in Britain tripled from about 300,000 to 1 million. However, whilst we know this population has grown, we also know that the racism, the intensity of it, um, and its divisiveness also grew at this time. Um, major events that built up to this conference would have been the, obviously the 1958 Notting Hill race riots, the death of, death of Kelso Cochrane, 
1962 Commonwealth Immigration Act, which was to limit the inflow of black people into Britain. Um, and then the 1964 election, um, where Peter Griffiths spouted the... Well, now it's just kind of an example of the racism that was taking place in politics. And I won't say the word, but if you want a, for a neighbour, vote Labour. That was Peter Griffiths, um, and he won his seat, I believe. Um, and this was kind of also the time um, where Malcolm X would have visited um, Birmingham, which we did an episode on. And there's a lot of kind of murmurings and conversations and movements for black liberation at this point in the 60s, because you've got a bigger community of black people it's becoming a more pressing issue as more people arrive. Racism looks different when you've got bigger groups of people. It becomes to be systemic because if you've only got, you know, one or two black people in communities, the racism that they will face will probably be more covert. It will be name-calling, it will be physical, it will be violent. However, when you become bigger in size as a community, as a group of immigrants, then things are put in place within the system or... Shall we say the system that was never designed for black people in Britain essentially starts to work really, really hard. Um, also at this time, groups like CARD, which is a campaign against racial discrimination, and I really need to do an episode on them because they pop up a lot in my research for episodes. And I feel like I personally need to know more. And also, obviously, if I know more, then you know more because I share it. Um, but... They were one of the main organisations um, within Britain and they actually disintegrated in 1967 due to some disunity coming from black members who were suspicious of some of the more white liberal members who were working within the kind of the state. They were working within the systems that were already in place where people would argue that that had already proven to be ineffective and something bigger was needed, i.e. revolution. So working within the machinery of the state, as it was said, to secure racial equality was said to be fruitless. Um, however, white liberals within that group, that is kind of what they were trying to do. Um, this caused, obviously, tensions, um, and then the group disintegrated. Um, in this kind of time where CARD doesn't really exist in the way it had before um, and people are moving on to decide if they are going to fall into the side of we need revolution, we need black power, we need something huge to change or we're going to work within the machinery of the state. Um, and this is something that divides I think black people even now. Do we work within the system that has kind of shown itself to not work? or not be fruitful in creating change or do we go for a whole new radical system um, and try and just beat down the systems now not to say either of them are right although maybe from the way I explained that I agree with one side a little bit more but I will say um, that there are disparities in black people obviously um, this is also coming from a show that came out on BBC two this week called uh, I think it's we are black and British or something to do with being black and British um, and it was a group of people that were from all walks of life all black people um, and they were put in a house together 
um, and they all talk about their experiences of being black in Britain and um, it's clear that there are different strands of, of thought and it's, it was nice to see the different strands of thought even though I didn't agree with all of them. Um, I think speaking to this point of there were different ways that people saw black liberation occurring, this is no different now to it being in the 60s. And now on to the Dialectics of Liberation Congress itself. So, Kwame Ture, let's go with that for now, uh, was in London as part of um, a world tour to promote his new book, Black Power, The Politics of Liberation. And he was invited to talk at this Congress in July 1967. It was um, quite a unique expression, shall we say, um, of what should be done politically um in regards to the key social issues of the next decade and i quote um and they were dis- to be discussed by intellectuals writers activists and the like stony carmichael was one of the most controversial speakers on the roster um and it kind of the conference speaks to the counterculture of the 1960s it featured speakers as listed at the start in the clip i shared um, R.D. Lang, um, Herbert Marcuse, and people like Angela Davis were in attendance. I mean, it was a very important conference, shall we say. Um, Angela Davis interestingly said, and this is in an autobiography, that the floor was covered with sawdust and the air reeked heavily of marijuana. Um, so I don't know what this says. Maybe it says more about the 60s um, or the kind of event that it was. But looking at videos I've seen on it, and I haven't managed to see many, um, the audience seems to be quite racially mixed, probably in its majority white liberal people, um, or that's kind of understanding I get from the topics that were on on the floor. It was seminar style, so um, the speaker or presenter would kind of give a lecture style speech, and then there would be a space for question and answers and debate. Um, and the clip you heard at the beginning uh, was Stokely Carmichael um, defending questions um, from another speaker because they were kind of suggesting that he's now this, like, radical um, black man that advocates violence um, in regards to revolution. Um, and then, you know, saying, like, are you really about that life, basically? And he was asking them, like, you didn't ask any of the white people that met out violence in the name of the government or the state or colonisation or empire, you didn't ask any of them what they are doing against white violence, um, you, but you're asking me what I'm doing about black violence, um, which is an interesting rebuttal. Now, he's seen as radical, obviously putting him into the context of the time, um, that's the label he's given. Um, his vision was essentially to inspire black people, to inspire revolution, but also to provide a kind of, not listening ear, but just to say, I don't know, I feel like some of the American activists that came to Britain in this time kind of just validated the struggles of black people in Britain because the focus in Britain was always on America and how bad it was there. Racism wasn't seen to be the same issue um, in America as it was in Britain, sorry, as it was in America, it wasn't seen to be as bad. So I think some of these leaders that came, especially people like Malcolm X when he came to visit Smedic, to compare how black people were treated to how Jewish people were treated in the Holocaust, which I've said isn't most 
isn't necessarily the most fruitful comparison, but it just highlights the fact that what black people were dealing with in Britain was comparable and on a level to what was happening in America and in other parts of the world where people were being oppressed. Um, and it, I think it validates what they're going through and it kind of wakes up the British state in a way to suggest that, look, like, black people are not happy here. Something must be done about racism. Um, and Stokely Carmichael's um, ideas uh, and kind of terminate, termination, the use of the term black power um, is kind of his brand of, of black activism at that point. Um, and it does stoke up conversations in Britain, which is exactly what he intended. Stokely Carmichael, being the powerful orator that he is, was said to have had the audience in the palm of his hand. His vision for empowerment really did inspire many black Brits um, as an alternative um, to working within the state. Self-determination and empowerment was advocated for. Um, Carmichael, and this is where his Caribbean background comes in, to importance, he centred his speech around um, white Western civilizations and attacking that um, in regards to the struggle of the third world against the oppression of empire and the colonial West, that being kind of European colonial powers. Um, and he kind of speaks a lot about a global struggle, not just limiting it to black liberation in Britain or in the US. It's, it's a global movement for black liberation. And this is what black power means. It's a unification, black. We now see it, I think it's been seen a little bit more negatively or some people might argue that black is a redundant term now, thinking about the fact that it is technically a social construct um, and it describes a group of people at any one time in any one place. However, when we think about the 60s and at that point, you would have been... West Indian or you would have been African American or you would have been African or you would have been Jamaican or Nigerian to be more specific within Africa and Ghanaian wherever black unified all these people rightly or wrongly so some would argue that unification was needed because they were fighting the same system and the same oppression which was racial oppression so let's all fight that together under one term of black however some might argue that the way that this fight needed to be conducted would be different in all kind of iterations of blackness. And so that, that term would be redundant. And different groups co-opted the term in different ways, excluded, quote-unquote, black people. And in that term, I'm, I'm speaking about people, I guess, with melanated skin um, of the African diaspora, no matter how far back. Um, the term is also used to exclude you aren't black enough or, you know, you haven't gone through this struggle of, let's say, having ancestors that are, were enslaved, so you wouldn't be black, etc., etc. We won't get bogged down with the term, but this is what black power is kind of meaning. Um, black people need to see themselves as part of a new force. They need to see themselves in relation to liberation struggles around the world of black people. And actually, when I even say black, I kind of mean black and I don't really like the term, but brown, brown people, Asian people, people that would have been lighter in skin tone from different parts of the world, but are also fighting this exact same thing of colonial oppression from Europe and the West. Additionally, his roots in Trinidad, as we mentioned, left him with um, a real resentment for colonial Britain 
and this came across in his speech, he really did connect and reverberate with black Brits like no other American civil rights leader or activist had before him. I think the idea that he understood British empire and colonialism and how it functioned in the Caribbean, where the majority of black British people would have been coming from, um, really helped him connect with the, the audience that he had there. Um, and they would have supported his arguments more than they might have necessarily supported another civil rights leader that came before or after. And our next section, the impact of the speech. So um, many black power organisations kind of pop up after, probably not just because of the speech, but just because, you know, as one organisation falls, like CARD did um, in 67, new ones come up to better um, argue for and advocate for the kind of aims of the people at the time. Um, so there were a lot of anti-capitalist um, militant stances that focused on racism and colonialism in regards to black power organisations. Um, they refused to act as like just parliamentary lobbyists or working within the system. They formed grassroots movements um, and had much more radical demands, um, it was said. These groups included the Black Liberation Front, Black Unity and Freedom Party, and most notably, Michael X, who I need to dedicate a whole episode to him. I think I've mentioned him about seven times on this podcast so far. The episode is coming, I promise. Um, but his Racial Adjustment Action Society, also known as RAS, um, these all kind of came out of this this time and this speech and the inspiration and empowerment that Stofi Carmichael left with him. Um, he actually was able to give this speech but was actually asked to leave Britain shortly after. He was banned from re-entering Britain after this visit in 1967, falling victim to the Black Power Desk special branch of the Home Office, um, which was at the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. MI5 had a track record, as we know, of monitoring radical black liberation leaders activists, pan-Africanists, anti-colonial agitators, the lot. Um, and that goes back all the way to the 19th century. Um, there's a beautiful article about that by Perry Blankson um, called The British State's Secret War on Black Power, which I will link in the show notes. Um, and yeah, Kwame Touré falls victim to this. He is kind of the next one. Um, he's also banned from Trinidad and Tobago in 1970, which is obviously a black-led government. Um, but for fears that he would um, kind of inspire the island to have its own black power revolt. Um, and, yeah, they actually quelled an uprising um, and jailed several black activists. So, yeah, Stodie Carmichael does not really speak again in Britain um, as he is asked to no longer, to never re-enter, really. He's banned. Um, he's not allowed for fears of what he will say. And I think banning someone from a whole country when they have literally done nothing wrong by law is very, very interesting to me. And yes, I will also note that Michael X, who started 
RAS, the Racial Adjustment Action Society, inspired by um, Carmichael's speech. He's also the first person arrested under the Race Relations Act as a black man um, for something he said. And in he said this in a speech that Stokely Carmichael was supposed to give but had obviously been banned um, in, I think it was Reading in London in months or years that followed. So these all things all tie up together very nicely um, and they all precursor an episode that will probably come in the next few weeks about Michael X um but I just thought it was interesting to note what happens after um such a powerful speech like that he shut down by the special branch of this special MI5 surveillance big brother situation that we have um he's no longer allowed to speak in Britain he's no longer allowed to even be in Britain now Stoney Carmichael's obviously contributed to the um understanding of black power in britain um in the 60s after this speech but you know he wasn't the first um and there were people that came before him that might have not used the term black power but their ideologies um would have aligned and so um amy ashford garvey claudia jones claudia jones was a communist um and activist and writer and everything else and we've spoken about her before. There's an episode on her. If you don't know much about her, go and listen. Um, she's from Trinidad as well. She is banned. Um, she's deported from the US. Um, and Trinidad said they didn't want her. Um, and so she ends up in Britain. Um, and starts the West Indian Gazette. Amy Ashwood Garvey is a widow of Marcus Garvey. So with roots in Jamaica. Moves to America um, with him and ends up in Britain as well. Um, Marcus Garvey also passed away in Britain um, and finished his life here. And they ran the West Indian Gazette from 58 to 65. Um, and these are ideologies that are kind of underpin the Gazette. Um, and even though they wouldn't have probably used the terminology British Black Power Movement or Black Power, um, the kind of ideology was already there. And I think this stems from their experiences with the Caribbean, the US and the UK. This kind of Caribbean underpinning and experience of colonialism and seeing a majority black population being ruled by white leaders that have literally kind of descended upon the islands and built their way up through enslavement and forced labour. To see that and then go to America and see kind of an iteration of that colonialism from Britain and France and all these other European powers, and then to see what that looks like where black people start moving and migrating into the UK. I think them having that consciousness and that understanding in their own lives, you know, being able to have lived through each of those experiences, I think is so important to this ideology that underpins British um, black power in the 60s. And our final section to end, Kwame Ture, as mentioned, was banned from re-entering Britain in 67. Um, he was also banned from Trinidad in 1970 um, and ended up in Guinea in Africa. He um, is said to have, and I quote, lived a life of poverty, although he raised millions of dollars for his party and various other causes he didn't live the kind of showy lifestyle of um, potentially a leader that he could have with access to so many funds. 
he chose a life of poverty. Um, and his kind of move to Africa and his work around the continent, um, I kind of think has impacted his legacy in a way that he's not the first name to be called on. We think about Black Power or the Panthers or... And, you know, not necessarily to say he should be, but he's not. Um, he spent a lot of time fighting in places like Libya, Cuba, Guinea, which we've mentioned. Um, he was a Marxist. And that obviously wasn't something that the US was fond of, to put it lightly. Um, especially because there was a middle, a black middle class emerging in the US, which we kind of spoke about in the 1920s, thinking about some of the people moving from the Caribbean into places like Harlem um, and New York um, and Florida as well and those wider regions. Um, black people were actually rising to positions of political power um, in America, um, whereas Kwame Therese has said, you know, he doesn't feel like fighting within the machinery that already exists and within the system makes sense so to see um black people going up through this system and being in places of power doesn't really do for him what maybe other people might have thought it was doing it wasn't giving <laughs> so um he actually ends up dying of cancer in later life in 1998 um and he claimed to have been infected with the disease by the FBI, interestingly. It's one of those things, when people say things like that, I would think, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then when you think about these, like, special branch desks and MI5 are literally surve having surveillance on black power leaders and want them gone, they are banned from their countries, they are taken to this place or not allowed to speak in that place, sometimes things like that don't seem that far-fetched for me. Uh, we can't prove it, it's allegedly, um, and it was uh, Kwame Touré's claim, and he's allowed to have that. Um, he does die of cancer, um, as I said, um, but in terms of kind of getting through that cancer, um, there was a lot of fundraising done for him to pay for his medical treatment, and even though you could argue that he wasn't so loved as a leader because people thought he was too radical um, and didn't really agree there were many leaders um, of the, that quote-unquote black establishment that attended a dinner for him in Washington to raise money for him um, I don't think it was organized by him but it was organized for him on his behalf and so even though you know he wasn't the most loved he's not the most quoted and he's not the most known leader I think he's an extremely important one to think about the kind of opposing side to working within the system um, and for what he's done as a man from the Caribbean, understanding being raised and living in America and then coming to Britain to share and then going on to Guinea, to Libya, to Cuba, which obviously is in the Caribbean, um, but having the kind of understanding of things that were happening in Africa as well. So a very important character, I think, and... I think a great way to finish off this US Black History Month. So I hope you've enjoyed the whole series, um, but especially this episode. And we'll be back on British soil next week, I believe.
So thank you so much for listening. Have a great week. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the History Hotline. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend to tell a friend. To continue the conversation about black history, head over to our social media platforms at the History Hotline on Instagram and at the History HL on